morning is the miracles of Christ, the miracles of Christ. You know, there are so many awesome and amazing and miraculous events in the Bible that came to mind when I was thinking about the miracles and the, and the different things we find in the Bible. And, and one thing that I, I, a couple of them, these are some that I found and that stood out to me. Of course, Moses parting the sea. I mean, what, what better um, scene in a movie than in the Ten Commandments when Charleston Heston gets up there and raises his hands and the sea is parted. I mean, I can only imagine what it was like to be there in person when Jesus, well, not Jesus, when Moses did it. Well, a story that me and my kids read the other day was that of Elijah calling down fire from heaven to completely incinerate the entire altar, let alone the sacrifice that was upon it. Um, of course, when uh, the gods of ba- or the prophets of Baal were trying to get um, um, to get the same fire to come down, and they were unable to do so. And then, of course, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. What an amazing miracle! Man that was in the grave four days. And, and Jesus calls out, Lazarus, come forth, and the man walks again. But sometimes it does seem like miracles just don't happen today. I don't know if you guys ever thought about that. I mean, there's every once in a while, I'm like, you know what, God, it'd be a whole lot easier if something took place, like, you know, if, if an actual miracle happened today, if Jesus was here to raise someone from the dead. Boy, I wonder how full our churches would be then. Now, part of this is biblical in reality. The timing is not there anymore. We don't need it anymore. Jesus has already come and offered atonement for the world. He's already shown us the different miracles that should prove this as fact. We also have the Word of God. Originally, when, when the disciples were able to perform miracles, it was to verify what was written in the Word of God and verify um, the message of the Gospel. But every once in a while we find an answer to prayer that looks very much like a miracle. Check out this video. Well, from inoperable to nowhere to be found, a Hayes County girl who had a rare brain tumor is now cancer-free, and doctors are amazed because medically they can't even explain it. Kayla Norwood introduces us to the Doss family months ago, and Kayla and the family is just grateful to have their miracle. Chris, talk about a 180. When I met the Doss family back in August, they were holding a benefit for Roxley in Buda. Now this summer, doctors diagnosed her with DIPG and there is no cure. But today, an answered prayer. Her tumor is now gone. All right, Rox, let's see it again on old Reptar. Riding on the back of a horse, doing what she loves. She is just as active as she ever was. It's hard to imagine not too long ago, doctors diagnosed this little girl, Roxley Doss, with an inoperable brain tumor called diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, or DIPG. It is very rare, but when we see it, it is a devastating disease. You have decreased ability to swallow, sometimes vision loss, decreased ability to talk, eventually difficulty with um, breathing. Dr. Virginia Herod at Dell Children says the now 11-year-old went through weeks of radiation, even though there is no cure. In August, the family held a benefit for her, and the Buda community responded in a big way. At that point, all Gina and Scott Doss could do was pray for a miracle. And we got it. Yeah, (laughs) we did. For sure. (laughs) Praise God, we did. (laughs) Now they cry tears of joy. It was actually um, unbelievable. The tumor is undetectable on MRI scan which is very unusual. On the brainstem area, you've got, uh, you know, it's just all, all throughout. On the right side, you know, it's, uh, you can't see it. Doctors can't explain why the tumor disappeared. 
with Dell Children's, at Texas Children's, at Dana-Farber, at Johns Hopkins, at MD Anderson, all agreed it was DIPG. From no cure to no trace, the family says now they only have God to thank. Well, and every day, I mean, we still say it. Like, it's just kind of our family thing that we're like, God healed Roxley. We didn't know how long she would, uh, she would be healthy, and, 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 but look at her. She's just, it's, she's doing awesome. The parents told me doctors double-checked her scans just to confirm those results. Right now, they are watching her closely, and she will continue to undergo treatments as a precaution. Chris? Amazing sometimes. You know, like I said, uh, you know, they said the doctors didn't know what happened, but, you know, I'm pretty sure I knew what happened. And it's only through the amazing grace of God that stuff like this can take place. You know, sometimes we see things happen, even today, that can only be attributed to His grace and His, His love for us. But then my question for you is this. What is your reaction going to be to the miracles of Christ? This morning, as we continue through Luke chapter 8, we are going to study the miracle of Jesus casting out demons from a man possessed by a demon or by demons. In the process, we will see two different reactions to the great and awesome power of God. So two reactions, that's the direction we're heading. But before we get there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done. Bless us now as we do our best to serve you and lift you up, Lord. Allow us to remember you no matter what and allow us to put you first in our lives. Allow us to know that you and you alone are, are, are the only source of our joy, as we talked about this morning in Sunday school, but also our salvation, Lord, in, in everything. Uh, we praise you for who you are, and we praise you for all that you've done. Now we ask that you help us understand the significance of this miracle we're going to study today and allow us to know that you have an amazing plan for us, and that plan um, is for us to serve you. Help us serve you. Help us go walk with you. Help us march with you in your army. Lord, in your name, amen. Turn me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. For the past month or so, it feels like it's been two months since we've been, uh, we began the eighth chapter of Luke, and we've been making our way through ever, ever since. Um, David read a little bit earlier my text from a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, where Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus and his disciples are crossing the sea when the storm go, or the Sea of Galilee and the, and, the, and the waters get rough, and Jesus is woken up by his disciples in, in a state of, uh, of, of the fear that they had that they were going to die. Jesus wakes them up, and he calms the storm. And I told you that Jesus can calm the storms in our lives as well. Today, we're going to read about how Jesus cast out a group of demons um, from this man possessed by the demons. Uh, let's go ahead and start off by looking at verse 26. So we're going to go away, make our way down the 8th chapter of Luke from verse 26 all the way until um, verse 39. So let's start at verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the, the Gerasenes. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So let's get some context here. First of all, timing. I felt the need to tell you this. I don't know why. I was trying to figure out when this event took place. Some thought, and the logical thought would be it was immediate. The, con the storm was calmed, and Jesus and his, his crew continue across the sea to their destination. But there is some debate on whether or not he turned around. They went back to the Capernaum area of Galilee. 
and then return here at a later date. It's useless information, honestly. I don't even know why I'm telling you that. So in the end of it, that was the plan. That's what I'm trying to figure out. In my mind, I needed to lay it out, and it's kind of hard. Another debate that I decided not to get into tonight or today was the location. Um, I'm going to put a map on the screen. That's the larger map of Israel. We're going to zoom into that top area around the Sea of Galilee. Um, you see where it says Capernaum and Bethesda. That's the area that Jesus, the majority of Jesus' ministry took place in. And at this event is going to take place somewhere on the south eastern side, so the bottom, if I guess you're looking at the bottom right side of that sea. Uh, there's some debate on the exact location. I'm just not going to get into that. We'll be here all day talking about stuff that has no real meaning. The point is that Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee to the southeastern shore of that sea where this miracle took place. There's a picture of the aerial view of the Sea of Galilee, and there is the Sea of Galilee from the coast that we had from a couple weeks ago. Uh, let's start off, look at verse 27 now as we uh, see the encounter that Jesus has with this man. Verse 27, And when he came out onto the land, he was met with a man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house but in the tombs. So, Immediately after deboarding the boat, Jesus encounters a naked man running around that was a little crazy. This would be, this had to have been the first, a first time thing for some of his disciples. Jesus might have been expecting it, but I'm assuming those 12 disciples were not expecting to encounter this individual, uh, nor would any of us uh, feel the same. Luke tells us that the demonic man was forced by the demons to live a life of solitude in a cemetery. He was forced to live amongst the tombs uh, live amongst the dead as opposed to living in a home. Luke indicates that the man had been living in this lifestyle, this condition, for a long time. How long, we don't know, but it was more than a couple of weeks. This is a prolonged process. This was his life, not one he chose, but one he found himself in. Look at verse 28 and 29. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Then verse 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So upon seeing Jesus, the, de the demons within this, this man interacted with him. They had an interaction. I wouldn't call this an in-depth conversation. It was probably a very one-way conversation with Jesus leading it. They cried out with a loud voice, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. The demons within this man spoke as one. It's a group of demons we're going to find out in a minute. But they're speaking as one. They recognized Jesus for who he truly was, the Son of the Most High God. If you look back at verse 25 from my text from two weeks ago, the disciples asked the question, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? And the demons really answered that question, the Son of the Most High God. The demons also begged him not to torment them. And verse, uh, the beginning of verse 29 explains why the demons felt that Jesus was going to torment them. Because he had begun the process of casting them out of the man. 
In the second half, verse 29, Luke gives us more details about this individual. He gives us a better picture of who this man was. On multiple occasions, the demons had taken over the man's body and mind. And despite the fact that he was bound in ch with chains and shackles and kept under guard, he would, the demons within him would continually push him out into the desert. He would break free of his bondage and he would free himself from the guard that was watching him and he would escape into the desert in verse 30, we learn the total number of demons within the man. So let's take a look at verse 30 and 31 now. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he, the demon within, or the group of demons within him, as one said, legion, for many demons have entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. So the Greek word used here for, for legion, as well as really the, the English word, comes from the Latin term, which meant a, a legion of troops, which most believe were about 6,000. It was a large group of troops. So the implication here is that there was about 6,000 demons within this man. If you look at the, uh, if we backed up in, in the Gospel of Luke and we looked at Mary Magdalene and the demons she had, I forgot how many, I think it was like seven. It wasn't a whole lot compared to 6,000. So this man was in a much different situation than maybe other people might have found themselves in. In Matthew's account, we read earlier in my call to worship that two men were possessed by demons. According to Matthew chapter 8, the demons asked Jesus not to torment them before the time. The thought here is that the time of torment for the, the, the servants of the devil was at the end of times when they were cast into the abyss. And the idea was that Jesus was going to, they thought he was going to torment them before that proper time, which was not the case. Another interesting thought, just looking at verse 31, uh, the abyss is a clear reference to hell. That's the best way to look at it. But another way of understanding the word in reference to hell, it, it, you know, we think about hell from a fiery perspective. Some people believe that the word actually has more of a meaning of a watery darkness, which ties in quite interestingly to the, the demon's future drowning within these pigs that they're about to be cast into. Look at verse 32 and 33. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons employed him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So the same group of demons that wanted to avoid the abyss ended up going to their watery death anyway. The demons asked Christ if they could, be, they could go into this herd of pigs. The significance of this because, you know, what's the point? He could have cast them out. They could have gone anywhere. It doesn't matter. They're not in the man anymore. The point here was the clear example of their departure. There was no questioning whether it happened or not because it was clear that they entered the pigs and the pigs ran off into the, into the, into the lake. They drowned. This whole herd of pigs, who knows how many. I mean, hundreds if not thousands of pigs um, ran off to their death because uh, of these demons. So, as we finish off my text, we're going to find two completely different reactions to this miracle of the casting out of the demons of this man. Two different reactions. First reaction, a reaction of fear and rejection. A reaction of fear and rejection. Look at verse 34 to 37 now. Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported in it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right state, or in his right mind. 
and they became frightened. Then verse 36, those who had seen it reported to them how the man who who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear, and he got into a boat and returned, obviously returned to the other side of the sea. The herdsmen who um, who cared for the pigs were understandably confused is the best way to put it. I mean, imagine if your your job is to watch over a bunch of pigs and your whole herd of pigs just went running off into the lake. I mean, that just could not have been the way your day was going to go. They they just, they must have, that that must have really confused them, obviously. So they're going to go and talk to some other people about it because that's what we do best. You know, they went off and they gossiped and talked to other people about what took place. They passed the word around to those within the city and the surrounding areas. As a result, these people who were not present wanted to come find out what just happened. I mean, again, thousands, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of sheep ran into the water. What just took place? And what did they find? They find a man that used to be controlled by demons sitting at the feet of Jesus, as opposed to living amongst the dead. They found a man who was completely clothed as opposed to being naked. And they found a man who was in his right state of mind, as opposed to being crazy and controlled by 6,000 plus demons. Now, you would expect them to rejoice, right? If we ever saw such a transformation, wouldn't we rejoice over it? And we don't need, we're not even talking about casting a demon out. Maybe a person who was stuck on drugs that suddenly, for whatever purpose, was able to get away from those drugs through Jesus, through, through a relationship with Christ. We would rejoice over the, the, the change that had taken place. But that's not what these people did. You would expect them to rejoice over the man's healing, but instead they reacted with fear and rejected the healer. Made well in Greek literally means to save. It is literally the same word for save. It's the word sozo. So what Jesus did was save the man from the condition he found himself in. It means to save, to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger or destruction. This man was more than just saved from the physical elements of his his situation. He was also saved from the spiritual ramifications of that situation. Very, very amazing story. Jesus literally provided this man with salvation. I mean, it's, it's just amazing to me. Yet, according to Luke, all the people in the area, all the people in the country of the Gerasenes, or Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. Imagine that, despite this miracle, all the people rejected Jesus. Their fear, which should have been one of holy awe, caused them to back away and push Christ away from them. And Jesus didn't play games with them either. I find this so powerful, because so frequently we have this idea that we need to Baby people sometimes, you know, if they reject the message, oh, we need to chase them down. That's not what Jesus did. He got into the boat and he left. Now the second reaction to this amazing miracle is a reaction of faith and obedience, a reaction of faith and obedience. Look at verse 38 and 39. Let's finish my text for today. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him, begging Jesus that he might accompany him But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. 
So while everyone else was demanding Jesus to leave, this man was begging Jesus to come with him. Like, Jesus, just let me go. I mean, honestly, think about that, right? We talk about following Jesus. We sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. And, and, you know, hopefully some people are actually following Jesus. You know, we're walking with the Lord. We're following him. But are we begging to follow him? You think about that significance. The man was begging to follow Jesus. He was like, I don't care what, you know, the miracle took place. I'm like, imagine if one of your children were like that. They had um, some horrible ailment taking place that prevented them from even having a relationship with you. And then they are cured of this. You would want them to come back to you. The man might, you know, he probably has a family. But instead he says, no, no, I want to go with Jesus. I want to go wherever Jesus goes. I want to do whatever Jesus does and I want to say whatever Jesus says. I want to live for Jesus. But Jesus had a different plan for this man's life. Jesus instructs the man to return to his house. Again, I think he had a home. He probably had family that loved him, that wanted him back with them more than anything else. But because of the situation he found himself in, because of the demons within him, he was unable to do so. Jesus said, go back to your home. And Christ implored the man to describe what great things God has done for you. And the man obeyed Jesus. As Luke tells us, the man went and not only told his family about Christ, but also the whole city about the things Jesus had done for him. And now, I don't know if you caught on to this. Look at verse 39 again. Jesus told the man to report about the great things God has done for you. And then the man went and reported the great things that Jesus had done for him. To me, that's a clear reference to Jesus being God once again. I mean, this man recognized it. It's very clear that was Luke's point. Luke wanted you to know that this person here, this Jesus, this human being, is not just your average human. He is God in the flesh. That's why this miracle makes sense. If it was just another human being, yeah, okay, great. The man is better now. Yeah, great. We healed him like a doctor would. But the fact that God healed him, just think about that, how amazing that is. So here's really the question I had. I asked it before, I'm going to ask it again. What is your reaction going to be to the miracles of Christ? What is your reaction to the miracles of Christ? How have and or will, how have or will you react to the miracles of Christ? And clearly this includes the miracles we find in the Word of God. You open the Bible, you read about the miracles that Jesus performed and the miracles that the apostles performed and even the Old Testament individuals. They, this clearly refers to that. But I would also say, even like the story we read earlier, while I don't believe that it could be put in the category of a literal miracle of someone putting their hand, you know, like the idea that Jesus like healed somebody, it's clear a miracle. It's answered prayer. God healed that little girl. And, I, and there are situations like that we see all the time. But in reality, most importantly, this includes the spiritual miracle that Jesus performed when he saved us from our sins. You see, Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins and rising from the grave so we can go to heaven when we die is the greatest miracle that could ever be performed for humanity. There's not a single other miracle that can happen that is greater than that one. He can heal everybody that has ailments. He can raise everyone who has died prematurely. In the end of it, if it wasn't for the spiritual salvation that he provided us, all of that would be useless. Lazarus died again after he was rose from the grave. Lazarus is in heaven because Jesus rose from the grave. Bottom line, this is the most important miracle that we can ever celebrate in our lives as well as in the lives of others. So what is your reaction going to be to the miracles of Christ? More specifically, the miracle of Christ, of salvation. Will it be one of fear and rejection? Or will it be one of faith and obedience? 
The people witnessed this amazing miracle, of this amazing act of God. They saw what took place in the demonic man's life, yet they chose to reject Christ. They chose to run away the other direction. I think I preached a decent number of sermons. I haven't been preaching that long, but preaching longer than some. And, and I think one of my biggest fears is I wonder how many people rejected the word of God that came out of my mouth. What's the point, you know? That's the most important thing is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Honestly, my fear today is that some of you might reject that message. We don't want to have fear and rejection. We want to have faith and obedience. You need to step forward in faith and obedience in Christ. We have to, all of us, no matter what level of your salvation you might find yourself in, no matter what level of your faith you might find yourself in, what's the next step? What's you, what are you going to do next? This means having faith that Jesus is who he said he is, but also obeying who, what he tells us to do. It's one thing to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. It's another thing to live for Jesus as, the, as he is the Messiah kind of thing. You need to live for Christ today. Imagine if a doctor gave you a prognosis. He came and he told you, you need to do this in order to be healthy. You need to do this in order to get better. And then you just ignore it. What good is that advice? It's useless. Or more, this is for me, this is the best example. Imagine if a mechanic told me something was wrong with my car. Because I'm telling you right now, I, you guys know this, I know nothing about cars. I am the last person, like if there was someone broke down on the side of the road and I pulled up next to them, I bet you their tires would fall off, the car would fall to the ground, it'd be over. Because I'm no good in that context at all. So if a mechanic tells me, hey, your car is broken, you shouldn't drive it at all because you might get into an accident, I should listen to what that mechanic says. If I don't, I'm going to put not only myself, not only my family, but even complete strangers at, at, in harm's way. Jesus not only told us what to do, he also performed many miracles to prove that what he, he said to do is true. Jesus gave us the instructions. He gave us all the information we need right here in his word. So what is your reaction going to be? What are you going to do? Are you going to listen to what he says? Are you going to listen to his, more than advice, to call it advice is wrong. Romans chapter, five, chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord or Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. In order to be saved, you need to do two things. This is simplifying it completely. First of all, you need to believe. You need to believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins and rose from the grave so you can go to heaven when you die. One of my favorite verses, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our sinful condition, Jesus died for you on the cross and rose from the grave so you can go to heaven when you die. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So you need to believe, but then the next step is confessing, as Romans chapter 10 just told us. We need to confess to others that Jesus is Lord in our life. Now, we confess this by doing three things. Really, it's two things. First of all, we confess this through our words and our actions, through what we do and what we say. This isn't preaching. This isn't evangelism. This is living for Jesus. 
Your actions, the way you act in life when you're just doing your thing at work or when you're in the grocery store will show other people Jesus in you. The demonic man had a transformation take place throughout all elements of his life. He chose to give up all his past life in exchange for living for Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are new in Christ. You can live for Jesus now in, in a different way. You weren't able to do so before. Your life has changed because of Christ. So we confess through our words and our actions, but then we can also confess through our preaching, through evangelism, through telling other people about Christ. Uh, the formerly demonic man, the formerly demonic man, the formerly demon possessed man, immediately started telling other people about what happened to him. He immediately did it. He started in his community. He started with his family. And really, it's an interesting thought. He is the first missionary, first evangelist to the Gentiles in the Bible. If you look at it, he's the first people, first person that started telling non-Jewish people about Jesus. We need to preach. We need to tell other people about Christ. Bottom line. Now, Jesus, he gave us a commissioning to do this. He gave us a calling to do this as Christians. During his final 40 days on earth, after his resurrection, before his ascension, Jesus gave what we call the Great Commission. It's recorded in all four Gospels as well as the book of Luke. I felt Mark chapter 16, verse 15 summarized it the most. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creation. If you have any questions on where or how many people, whatever, guess what? It's all. Everybody. There's not a single person that doesn't need to hear about Jesus, about the gospel of Christ, about Jesus dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins and rising from the grave so we can go to heaven when we die. All humanity has been called to turn their lives over to Jesus today. And those who have accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior, Christians are called to, to tell other people about Jesus Christ and are called to live their lives for Christ. Bottom line. Let me close up with this. Once again, the question, what is your reaction to the miracles of Christ? What is your reaction going to be to the miracles of Christ? Is it one of, of fear and rejection? Or is it one of faith and obedience? My prayer is that you embrace salvation in Jesus today. That's step one. But my prayer is also that you live exclusively for him, meaning live your life for him. Put him as number one in your life. You do this through coming to church and being involved in your church family. You do this through reading your Bible on a daily basis. You do this through prayer. You do this through living for Jesus. You do this by doing what Jesus would do, bottom line. And then finally, my prayer is that, that you tell other people about the amazing grace that you have received. Tell other people about Jesus, because if you don't do it, nobody else will. Let me close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for all that you've done. Bless us now as we try our best to redirect our entire focus to you and you alone. Lord, you need us, or you want us to serve you. You don't need us to do anything, Lord. You're, you have things under control on your own. So, Lord, I just ask now that you help us. Give us the encouragement to step forward and serve you with all of our hearts. Allow us to know that you and you alone are the only way to get to heaven, not only for ourselves, but also for others in our lives, for those that we care about and love, about them, love the most, those who aren't coming to church, those who aren't living for Jesus, those who don't know Jesus. Lord, it is us that you may have chosen to use as the instrument to pull them closer to you. So, Lord, I ask now that you give us the ability and give us the words, give us the confidence and the courage to tell other people about Christ, starting in our families and in our inner circles 
but then spreading out to the whole city, to the whole state, to the whole country, and to the whole world. Lord, I praise you and I thank you in your wonderful name. Amen.